a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this one, we have the honor of speaking with the great and powerful Stuart Pierce, the master of voice himself. Uh, as well as being an incredible author, he is an angelic facilitator, a seeker, a sound healer, an international renowned voice coach. The guy's got the best voice in the world, by the way. You guys are going to love this. So uh, all the ways to find him, of course, guys, will be located down in the show notes. We have a wisdom-filled conversation about his work, about Princess Diana. He was great friends with her, and we get some wonderful, warm insight into her from his perspective that not everybody knows. So it was a real treat to get to hear that. So uh, guys, again, all the ways to find him will be located down in the show notes. Make sure that you check him out. Fascinating, fascinating guy. Uh, all of the ways, if you would like to expand your experience on this show, will be found down in the show notes as well at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where links to all socials, merchandise, Rockfin, all of that stuff, guys. So if you fancy, it's down there. Go check it out. Also, we have launched our premium content, which is going to be called Expanded Reality. And you can uh, sign up through the website. It's really cool. We have a bunch of really, really fun stuff going on over there. So make sure you check that out. Also, if you fancy. So uh, without any further ado, guys, let's get to this incredible conversation with the master of voice himself, Stuart Pierce. All right, everybody out there in listening world, thank you so much for joining us. An extra special one today. Of course, as always, I always promise you guys the best and the best today. We have the great and powerful Stuart Pierce here to hang out with us. Stuart, how are you today? I'm feeling really cool and glad to be here. So thank you for inviting me and hi there to the listeners. How could I not? You're incredible. So my listenership is absolutely going to adore you. Uh, if you don't mind, though, before we get ramped into it, uh, for the folks that may be discovering you for the first time, just let us know a little bit about yourself. Mmm, cheeky. So I have to do it rather than you doing it. Well, you, mm. In your words, it'll be way better than anything I could read off a piece of paper. Oh, I don't know about that. I always love listening to the way that people review my bio. And sometimes, though, that because uh, I have my own show as well. So I always inject a few superlatives just to, you know, just amplify the whole nature of the reality of this person. Are we being seen or just heard? We're being both. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, you call me a master of voice, and the master of voice I gathered, I was given when I took part in a, the, recreate, the creation of a wonderful project. And this would have been, um, I was drawn into the project in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was the reconstruction of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre here in the city of London in the United Kingdom, um, building a theatre which looks very much like the theatre that must have been there in 1597, um, you know, employing all of the material sort of being used then and all of the architectural geometry that was used then so it has a very unique vibration uh, and I was asked by one of
one of my clients who was the first artistic directive, I would go along and become the master of voice or the master of voice. <laughs> and the reason why um, if you wanted to call um, the specialists their masters was to give us the appellation of respect and reverence for the fact that we were accomplished in our fields. And they were the, the term was really borrowed from the ancient livery companies that would have been around at that time in the city of London. You know, the worshipful company of tallow makers, the worshipful company of cabinet makers, the worshipful company of textile producers or whatever they were called. Uh, and of course, today we refer to these as being trade unions. And so the story goes that when a young, obviously it was a patriarchal society, so it would be the, the girls would stay at home and the young men would go into training with the journey person at the age of 14 and work for seven years, learning the basic skills of what it would be to make candles or furniture or whatever. And then they would be tested by the journey person and they would then do a further seven years. And after 14 years, they would meet the master and the master would assess if their skill, capability, intuition, you know, all of those wonderful qualities that take, um, that make a really great creative art artisan, the master would literally test them. And if they were qualified, they would work with the master for a further seven years. By the end of 21 years, they became a master. That's where it comes from. So what this means is that for I was an actor and then I've trained actors for about 40 years. But at the very beginning of my career, I drew public personalities to me. So, for example, my first big client was Margaret Thatcher, the first female president, uh, prime minister, I should say, of the United Kingdom. And then, of course, you know, if you work with somebody like Margaret Thatcher, there are several fe feathers in one's hat. And so a lot of other people came, uh, as well as, uh, you know, wonderful actors, amazing actors but I'm also a mystic so I've always always had a very awakened consciousness to the supernatural or the preternatural world in other words since childhood I've had access into multidimensionality and so I pioneered sound as a healing modality for example, in relation to the fact that we each have a note, we each have a signature sound at the very core of our voices, and that when we sound them, we create harmony within our bodies. And of course, when we feel harmony within our bodies, we feel a sense of personal power and purpose. The difficulty is that being fixated by the doing, doing, doing consciousness, what we tend to do is spend a lot of time in our heads. Do you know what I'm saying? And so we move away from that note. And as a result of that, we often... I'll stop doing it. We often move into areas of disharmony, chaos, and all also dis-ease within. I mean, profound states of dis-ease. There's nothing unusual about what I'm saying when we move into the world of esoterica, because sound is at the very core of creation, as we know. In the beginning was the word or the Big Bang. You know, the Anasazi peoples in the southwest of the U.S. say that um, when the Spider Woman sang, she brought everything into creation. It is about the voice. And this is what's uh, unique to the human species as well, is that we have this very signature voice, but also uh, we communicate in such a variety of different ways. Uh, the oracle traditions have been the most sacred, and this is because of the connection to the voice. It is that which separates us. It is that which connects us. And so it is brilliant in, in its in just its concept, in just the way that we utilize it. Now, some folks, like you said, uh, not so much speak the language as chew it up and spit it out, but also there, there's a real beauty in, in a craft into the way that people can 
project their words and, you know, create a story and articulate an idea in such a way that's just masterful and so impressive to me are folks like yourself that it just seems to come with ease, but you've been working on it for a very, very long time. So what was the first time somebody said your voice is unique? Do you remember that? They, well, they didn't use the word unique, but they said there's something about your voice. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was a troubled school kid. You know, I couldn't learn. So I suppose today we would call me borderline ADHD or slightly autistic. I was dyslexic and synesthetic. So I saw sound um, from a very, very early age. You know, synesthesia is a crossover of the senses. So I wasn't just hearing, I was seeing sound as waves of consciousness and the beings of light that talked to me. I thought everybody saw what I was seeing when I was a kid. So I talked about it and I soon saw bewilderment or indeed horror on my caretakers faces you know particularly the school teachers because I couldn't do their stuff and uh, this was just post second world war so I was beaten quite thoroughly that's what you did you apparently you beat intelligence into a child mm. at that point you know which is just so utterly ridiculous um, but when my voice broke which was early puberty set in around 10 11 and my voice broke and I remember I was about 13 and somebody said, why don't you join the drama group at high school, you know? And I thought, what's this drama thing? Okay, so I'll go and have a look at what this is all about. And had such an amazing time because it was all about freedom. And the, 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 the teacher, I remember, who I really liked, she was an amazingly inspirational woman, said to me, you know, there's something about your voice. And I went, wow, there's something about my voice. I mean, there's nothing else about me. You know, I was always being told you are nothing and you will always be nothing. So when somebody said there's something about your voice, you know, and I saw obviously, and I can see orically what was actually happening in the intentional energy of her being. And she was full of light. And so I was automatically drawn to that and thought, wow, there's something about my voice. I need to do something about this. So that's where it began. So I was about 14, 15. And that's where the seeds were planted uh, that, that led you to where you are now, utilizing it as such a tool to change the world for the better. This is what's so cool about these things. Now, did you, do you find it serendipitous or deliberate that that occurred for you at that time in your life or at all? Oh, it was magic. It was serendipity. Yeah, unquestioned. No, I mean, you know, the spirit world has always been open to me. So when I see the signs, I see the signs. I mean, I love the way that, for example, you opened our conversation with the oracular wisdom, you know, with the oracle wisdom. That for me was a moment of an oracle where the space-time continuum distorted. And that's what I mean by seeing her auric field, because I could see the beings of light that were standing behind her. And it was almost as though they were nodding at me in acknowledgement. You know, what I like about uh, what separates a master from the from the student or the apprentice uh, is that the master has failed more times than the student has even tried. And so for you to become a master of voice, what were some of the trials along the way that led to that? Of not being listened to, of not, be, of not being heard, of people not understanding me. And then... I decided that the great works of the great poets, Shakespeare and his contemporaries, and the other great playwrights who were rich in the firmament and the fermentation of sound. You know, this is before the noise, you see, it's before the machines. 
and before the Age of Enlightenment. So there was a great belief in the magical sounds of the human voice. And obviously at that time, you know, only an eighth of the population could read. And if you don't read, you hear sound in a completely different way. So I became enraptured by great poetry. That was a healing. Um, but of course, setting myself up as an actor meant that I was prone to rejection, 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 like so many actors are. And I was such so sensitive and vulnerable at that time. But finally I was seen and, you know, again, serendipity happened and a remarkable woman who happened to be the voice director of the Royal Shakespeare Company saw me as a young actor and said, come and work with me. And it was fact, it, her name was Cicely Berry and she was an extraordinary sort of white witch, white witch of a woman. You know, she would conjure actors' voices into, oh God, I watched her transform people. And they often didn't know what had happened, but they had become great actors simply because of the magic that she used. But yeah, I mean, like so many of us who are sensitive or empathic, I moved through life and um, was sorely dented by a lot of the experiences. But I always, now I look back and I've reached a certain balance and a certain harmony, um, I, I see them as being immensely rich, you know, that they led me to understand my humility. They un led me to understand grace. They led me to understand that I'm, my voice may be different from a lot of people, but there is something very special about what I want to say. And now, fortunately, you know, in my seniority, in my masterliness, lots and lots of people come and listen. And it's wonderful because they then say, wow, that was amazing. Thank you so much. You know, and it's an incredible ride because now your thing is and what draws people to you is that they just want to hear what you have to say and how you say it. You know, deliver everything comes into the way that you specifically deliver the message. And it's it's incredibly well done. It's brilliant. It's it's a natural thing that not everyone can achieve. So it's very nice. So but I but I like the juxtaposition of your story because it's the hero's journey. I mean, that which specifically you sought after people specifically were not interested in hearing you. And then now it's the complete opposite. So it's like this beautiful journey. And, you know, those things are necessary in my mind uh, to be that which you are now, uh, because now you can inspire those who may be feeling the same way as you did whenever you were rejected countlessly, but you didn't stop. And then serendipity would have it. Your persistence paid off and look where you are now and look at the lives that you're changing now with what you do. It's massive, man. So I, I love your story and I love the hero's journey element of this and I'm grateful you took us through that uh, so let's let's talk about your uh, books a little bit if you don't mind so what is your favorite book of yours that you've written B before I go there can I just utter one one small reflection from Please. what you've just shared um, because it's the nature of rejection and how it detonates something huge within our consciousness and although it seemed maybe from my story that it became a disempowering aspect of life what i recognized earlier on was it was to do with the universe it was to do with divine will showing me that i was going in an inappropriate direction and that i needed to go in this direction and as soon as i had moved away from the stubbornness deep inside within my own will and really just became more flexible and saw what the opportunities were about 
you know, we all say crisis equals opportunity, that suddenly the universe opened to me and something magical happened. So, you know, I see that the rejection is really a, a universal signpost. It's the universe or the divine saying, go in this direction. <laughs> um, my favorite book that I've written, well, I have to say my latest. I, I mean, you know, my heart, soul, my tears and my fury went into writing Diana, the voice of change, uh, which is which is about the essence of Diana. Unfortunately, it's become an international bestseller over the over the last what is it now fifteen months, a little bit more that it's been in existence. And you release it on what would have been her sixtieth birthday. Is that correct? Yay! Yes, that's right. Yeah, Very cool. The, summer of last year mm -hmm. just just before uh, you know she was a, she was a cancer lady uh, meaning she was born under the sign of cancer and um so it was in july of last year yeah that it came out and it, to tumultuous acclaim and particularly in the us i mean i i think i've given somewhere in the region about 180 press interviews that have gone online and i've been on national tv i think five times dr drew i was on dr drew's show and he i think he, well, there were 750,000 people who were clicking saying oh my god this is amazing you know so i've i've had great fun transmitting the information yeah, what's outstanding, of course. Uh, so that as well as all of the ways, guys, to find him will be linked down in the show notes. Make sure that you'll check him out. Uh, some phenomenal work as well as, I mean, some of your other work, the Angels of Atlantis. I mean, the Hearts Note, both come with complimentary or, uh, additions to addendums, which are uh, the Oracle cards and, of course, the Sonic Meditation as well. So I like how it's all encompassing. You've got a real experience for these folks whenever they embark upon your work. Uh, I love it, man. It's, it's very well thought out and uh, it's very intriguing to the enjoyer. So we appreciate that kind of attention to detail. So um, what made you want to write The Voice of Change? Mm, good question, because I had a confidential relationship with Diana, Princess of Wales, and I never envisaged writing anything because of the nature of that relationship. I mean, this was one of the most sacred, one of the most extraordinary human beings that I've had the immense honor to be with um, for two years, the last two years of her life. Well, almost two years. And um, it was really about six years ago when I was working in Los Angeles with the number uh, one or two really special actresses and hashtag me too was really coming forth. And one of them had been mightily maligned by the industry and particularly by a certain gentleman who will remain nameless, um, who had abused her sexually. And um, I said, you know, you really need to step forward because look what your sisters are doing. You know, you know your sisters are stepping forward and sharing their stories. And this is about the around of the divine feminine you're coming forth and as a result of speaking you know i was reminded of a wonderful japanese proverb which says that when the women's voices are aroused the mountains move and the arousal of the divine feminine i feel is one of the greatest keys that we have to create equity to create the respectful nature of diversity to bring about um, the uh, the finality or the completion of the absurd diversification 
objectification that goes on in our world, particularly the rejection of gender uh, and, of course, transsexualism or homosexuality, you know, da 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 and to improve the state of the disassociated and the disenfranchised, you know, particularly those people who are living in, um, you know, poor economic circumstances around the world. Anyway, so... I helped her, uh, aid and abetted, and of course that began this wave of hashtag Me Too. Uh, and I was just considering, wait, wait a moment, Diana's voice was one of the first great voices that stepped forward as she began to empower herself in relation to the same coherence, the same resonance of hashtag Me Too. And then I thought, wow, well, why don't I write a book? And then I remembered Diana saying to me, completely en passant, the last time I saw her, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a book about all the things that we've shared together? But let's not do that until the boys are married. I mean, it was so passing as she hugged me to say goodbye when she was going on holiday. This was July of 1997, you know, uh, the early part of July. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, that something happened in my body where when she hugged me, there's something thudded into me. Mm. And I had this presentiment that this was the last time I would see her. Wow. But I didn't, I didn't express it, you know, so I was very caught up in that emotion. I was also hearing her. However, so as a result of those moments, I sat down and started writing the book. And I mean, I can say it on your channel. Uh, I feel that Diana was with me all the way through that and still is. Yeah, it's that essence. And I love what you said about the thud. That is very interesting. Now, I also am just curious, and you don't have to tell us if you don't want to, about uh, the evening that she passed away. Was there any premonition on your part, or did you know something happened or have any off dreams or senses or anything? I was actually in New Mexico. I was in Santa Fe. And... Um no, I was in Taos, and I felt really uneasy all day long. And then um, was with, with very, very good friends. And then, you know, the night occurred, and the following morning, I remember we went and had brunch, and I did something I never do. I looked over somebody's shoulder who was reading USA Today, and on the front page was Diana's Dead. And uh, a sound came out of me that I'd never heard before or since. It was like a, an animal wailing. And I, I, I apologized to everybody because everybody yeah. was very startled and ran. And it just so happened around the corner was a church, a Roman Catholic church, Santa Maria, I remember. And I went in and obviously, you know, the mass or whatever had just finished. And the priest was standing there. He saw me and he just did this with his arms. And I went and I just folded into his arms arms and he hugged me for about half an hour while I just wept. It was just the most extraordinary experience, completely irrational. Mm. You do hear of this interesting, especially with connections like that, to where there there is uh, something that that occurs physiologically whenever or right before a death occurs, even if you're separated, like in this case, completely, you know, halfway around the world. Uh, that it, it's just an interesting correlation. And thank you for sharing that with us. It's it's horrible that that happened to your friend, but it's amazing that you got to see her in such a beautiful way that not a lot of people did. Mm. Mm. which is a question I have for you. So um, what is something that you feel like sharing with us about the princess that you don't think anybody else really understands about her and that she would want to be understood for? Mm. That's a great question, Brandon. That's a great question. Um, mm. I 
What's interesting about Diana was the fact that she was a consummate empath. And the nature, the nature rather, of empathy as the contemporary tool that we're seeing is quintessential, that empathy is a pathway through vulnerability to a very distinct power that I believe is a superpower, because it's based on the intuitive nature of feeling through the sensorium of one's body, but also in relation to the deep, deep, deep heart resonance. And it wasn't fully understood. I mean, she was seen as being beautiful, which is indeed true. She was seen as being frail and fragile, um, but nobody really understood. And I suppose it's very easy to talk about it now retrospectively, because after all, what she what she portrayed was an iconic tool that opened up the underbelly of consciousness within the patriarchy, and particularly within the House of Windsor, within you know the, the last monarchic household in the world, you know, as we move away from the spectre or what used to be, you know, the privilege of monarchy into something completely different where we're discovering our own sovereignty. Um, she, of course, uh, was not, as she called it, book learned. She wasn't an intellectual. She was a pure intuitive and she was radical in her psychic ability of being able to walk into a room and sense, you know, these large rooms where obviously there were lots of people gathered because the Princess of Wales was about to arrive. Um, and she could scan the room and tell you absolutely everything about the groups of people. And so she always knew I mean, she was always immensely gracious, of course, but she always knew who to hang out with and who not to hang out with, you know, who are the good ones and who are the naughty ones. And she went to all the good ones because she didn't want to be contaminated. Um, so on that level, her empathic nature was extremely porous. She would sponge people up. And in the early part of her life, she found that very difficult, you know, because, and so that led to the, um, the discordant energies that then manifested in relation to bulimia and self-harming and the despair that often took her towards, I got to kill myself, you know. Um, those very extreme emotions. What she was trying to do all the time is to find out the capacity of what the feeling was all about. And of course, we all know that's really difficult when we don't have equal resonance on the outside. I mean, you met your darling whom you're married to and you suddenly you met a way of being able to see you very clearly because of the way that she would just hold you in unconditionality. Uh, I feel the same thing happened for Diana. You know, then she was seen more through the screen or the mirroring of the general public than through anybody very personal, although she was surrounded by a few very dear friends. You know, Windsor is one of those elements that you probably would consider a pretty dense energy. And with Diana vibrating at such a high resonance and being such an empath, that had to have weighed on her. And this would, of course, result in some sort of uh, physical alteration to her and not in a po probably a positive way. And so it ended up with some toxic, uh, you know, experiences that she went through. But it's it's unfortunate. But it's this dense energy that she was immersed in. I mean, really, I mean, unarguably, right? I mean, publicly, it's it's pretty thick. 
but privately, things she was even privy to that we don't have. I mean, I love that with her empathic nature, she was able to gather a discernment. And that's what's most important, especially walking into a wolf's den, uh, such as something like that, energetically a wolf's den. So uh, it, it's fascinating to me um, that, that you were able to, like I said, connect with her on that level, but also the story and something that she would want to be remembered for, uh, which I think you did a beautiful job at. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. That's, that's awesome. It makes me see her in a different way. So thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're very right. Uh, how, how aware, you know, the, the, the perspective that I was just gaining as a point of amplifying what you were sharing is the intensity of the, the vibration within the patriarchy. And this is a very, very old island, you know, our heritage is this very small, cold, grey island as well. Um, when, it, when I think of, you know, my second home is New York, you see. So when I think of the expansity of the way that I feel when I'm in the United States of America, I just happen to be recording in my apartment in London at the moment. Um, <clears throat> but the, the nature of the density I've discovered myself in producing the book because it was rejected by the establishment um, and vilified by the British press. A complete antithesis in the US. I mean, the complete opposite. Um, and, the, and I was brought up in it because my dad worked for the royal family. So I was sort of aware of it from, from childhood. But of course, that life was very different then. Things have changed extensively over the last 65, 70 years in the sense of the evolution of our societies and our cultures. And of course, now we're reaching a point where we're recognizing that the, 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 organi the organizing principles or the organism of the organizing principles in our societies in the West is simply no longer serving us. And so we need to move away from it. And it doesn't want to because it's used to controlling and coercing us into being what it wants us to be. And we're saying, no, um, and, and then, of course, we get into the substance of COVID and the, the effects of COVID. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very dense in Europe. It's, it's much less dense in the United States of America. And I feel that that's one of the reasons why Meghan, God bless her, meaning the Duchess of Sussex, um, underestimated what she was walking into because she's a smart, sensitive woman. And when she walked into the density of the patriarchal experience, um, she suddenly saw what it meant. And it obviously shocked her quite a bit. And then, unfortunately, as we saw, she was treated so badly. It's like history repeating. You know, it's this cycle because she is, you know, she infiltrated kind of like Diana, an outsider coming in, uh, hated by the family, but loved by the public. And so there's this juxtaposition there that's fascinating. It makes for a great story. But also, um, you know, it seems like she was also able to snatch that, you know, half that was Diana's out of her husband. And then they got out of there. It's an interesting kind of, um, you know, like a psychological operation that occurred. But it was after those intense energies were displayed that it sounds like just a really strong person knows just to get away from it and grab what's hers and move on. Uh, it's it's fascinating, man. I, I like this perspective, but you put it really, really well, uh, as well as your, your book. I mean, it seems like the same thing, right? The official press, I mean, just like over here, they side generally with the leaders or the people in power. A lot of them are owned by those people, uh, depending on how you look at that. So with uh, the experience that you had in the press about your book about her, it makes sense. It mirrors the monarch's um, 
idea or impression of that situation. But again, in U.S., we're all about the underdog story. So yeah, of course, it would have been uh, liberated here. Uh, not so much dissonance on the release. So good. Well, I'm glad we treated you well then. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, also wanted to ask you, so when somebody asks you uh, how to be the voice of change, what would your answer be? You ask really neat questions. <laughs> well, you're a neat <clears throat> guest. You just inspire me. Well, thank you. Yeah, you, I, I'm seeing you, and it's really interesting being with you energetically. You know? um, the voice of change, in essence, is really simple. It's the voice of the heart not the voice of the head. That's the voice of change. And so it does, I don't want to use the word demand, but it does evoke a radical change in the way that we live internally and express externally the purpose of our being, mentally and physically. Our voices are purely physical means that we use to convey the way we think and feel of course, what's interesting is that their phys the physiology is based on sensation memories and sensation tendencies. Um, so to create a really, or to help someone create their own fully evoked voice, it has to be physical and then sensation-based. And so the voice of change is an awakening to an old way of being that I'm referring to as the metaphoric consciousness, which was really around before the cerebral consciousness of the force of literature and how we all became adequate readers, and then moving into the expansion of the Age of Enlightenment, the expansion of cerebralization, um, the whole, um, to use the word yet again, expansion of the scientific endeavor, which led us into commercialization, industrialization and now capitalization. And here we are, you know, right up here, uh, you know, just moving really fast. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm God, what are you, as opposed to really, you know, really feeling how we can be listening posts in oceans of sound and therefore open our hearts. I summarize it through borrowing a line from Rumi. Rumi says, if words arise from the heart, they enter the heart. If words arise from the tongue alone, they don't pass beyond the ears. And isn't that so true? When we look through the crises of the last two years, the global crises of the last two years, and how everybody was genuinely really frightened, and of course, many people still are. Um, but, you know, we see fear as, well, crisis equals opportunity, so we're going to do with it, you know? Um, but the, the fear led, in, once we got used to it, led into the intellectualization of conspiracy theory, which sort of spawned opinionation in the most extreme ways through social media. Um, and this is the way that we try to sound out, you know, rather like depth charging. What is this all about? Unfortunately, it seems that many people haven't regained or haven't gained the resonances that sounding out can often have. So they're stuck in the cerebralization of their purpose. Surely the only way forward is that we exchange on an empathic level, that our hearts meet our hearts. And then suddenly, as I've discovered in unique experiments around the world where I've been asked 
to engage in sound as a transformative experience that I've seen unbelievable cultural schisms be healed. I mean, for example, there's a world-class musician who's been a friend of mine for many, many years, and he said he, he's Jewish, and he said to me, would, would I go with him to Israel, to um, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and sound for young Israeli and young Palestinian musicians who were of a certain competency because he's a hotshot as a professional musician with a great pedigree and experience, would I go and bring about harmony? So, of course, I was fascinated and uh, went, went with him and noticed that when they came into the rehearsal room with their instruments, you know, their violins and their cellos, that you could cut the atmosphere with a knife because of the enmity between pa the Palestinians and the Israelis. And then they started playing Mozart and the whole thing changed. And then he gave them, after whatever, an hour and a half of playing, um, he gave them to me and I introduced them to their note. And we ended up, everybody was hugging one another, you know, and thousands of years of conflict, as it were, were being alleviated. There's the power of sound. But we can't do this if we aggressively intellectualize with one another. The only way to do this is through the power of the heart. And of course, as you and I know, that through heart math, we've learned a lot about the energy field of the heart and that it's actually 5,000 times greater electromagnetically than the energy field of the brain. It's fascinating and, and absolutely incredible. I, I love that fun fact because uh, it's, again, fascinating. Uh, you know, and back to your Rummy quote, uh, one of the things that makes that so beautiful, man, is that the heart speaks to the heart. If it's from the heart, it goes to the heart. It shows that intent, and that's what it's all about. And this discernment and intent is what's very necessary for people to kind of transcend the nonsense that's pushed to divide us. And this, like, PC culture, let's say, just as a as an example, or one people, people who are very specific about their word choice uh, and not the intent behind it. That is what is so important is that discernment. And that is why it's uh, fairly easy to leverage a division type of a tactic if that's what's occurring. Now, it seems to some people that that is and that needs to be a part of the conversation, I guess, in that sense, but we don't spend any time on it other than to say that it is part of the conversation. And so if that is the case, then something like what you experienced in Tel Aviv was is beautiful in the way that it's real and it's authentic. And that's what was necessary. I, I agree that the music was the catalyst, but I think that the intent and the heart center behind it was why you were able to experience the results that you did. I hear you. I'm absorbing what you said. Perfect. Uh, well, th yes, then there you go. That's that's what I had to say about it. Um, mm. Okay, well, I won't keep you too much longer. I just had a few more questions for you, but I want to have fun with some of these. So let's, uh, let's do this. So what do you think the structure of reality is? Oh, my goodness. What a question. Nice, easy one, right? I see, you know, because I see um, sound, see thoughts, see feelings. I see the structure of reality as being a mirror or a screen. You know, for example, as I look at you, I see a screen for my consciousness, and I know that it's not happening to me; it's responding to me. So, if I if I send off a certain harmonic energy what i've discovered is that it's mirrored back but if i send off enmity or 
non, you know, separation, divide, diversive energies, I don't actually reach a point of harmony. So that's the structure of reality. Uh, it's perfect. Uh, and I uh, resonate with that in a huge way as well. Uh, when we, because on this show called Expanding Reality, that is something that I'm very interested in is figuring out what is going on here. Uh, and so to your points, that's kind of the part intellectually that I'm at as well. I, I really do think, and I've got a great friend of mine uh, who speaks high truths to this, uh, Mira Taylor from Moon and Ruin. You guys go check her out. I talk about her all the time because we talk all the time. And uh, she has some wonderful ideas to this point. She's really taken me intellectually to that next level as far as seeing everything as a mirror of yourself reflecting back to you. And that's why in our conversation before we started recording here, some things that helped my marriage was, uh, you know, we have the same similar troubles, you know, as everyone else or challenges to be overcome. And we chose to overcome them, but not by being combative and fighting each other and wishing the other would change things that irked us about each other. We changed ourselves instead. And those, um, that dissonance quality in the, in our partners evaporated overnight. It was a quick and easy change. It's it, we changed us and therefore the reality and, and, the everything mirroring back to us was changed as well. This is the great secret, I think. I think that this is the thing that intellectually, whenever you reach this point, things get a lot easier. Um, there was a, just a quick story. There was a YouTube comment that I got about a guest that I had on, and I pronounced his name incorrectly, and and I agree with this. It's actually the first time I've ever told this on the show. Uh, and uh, so there was a YouTube comment that I got that just blasted me about... Um, mispronouncing this gentleman's name. Now, uh, what's funny about the fact that it occurred at all after the episode released, and this is an organic thing like this. I don't edit content, so I'm not going to go back and make myself look better. You're going to get authenticity. You get what we said here. So uh, the thing about it was, is that was something I was already incredibly self-conscious about it because my goal here, as you know, is to make the guests feel as comfortable as possible and to really have an awesome time. That's that's the goal. So uh, I don't feel like I achieved it in this one small way. Now, uh, his name is Peter Shampoo. I, he was so sweet about it. I wrote him an email. Like This was in my mind. I wrote him an email and said, apologize for it, didn't mean to be disrespectful. And he said, dude, it happens all the time. It's okay. Uh, and was very, very sweet about it. So from the person I felt bad about, that's gone. That, that association's gone. So it wasn't his guilt that I was carrying. It was still mine. It was my issue. And then the next day, boom, YouTube comment about the specific thing. Now, there's a lot that goes into producing this show. The audio, the video, the uh, lighting, the, the graphics, all of it. But out of everything that could have been nitpicked that it takes to create this thing, it was the one thing that I was already insecure about. And then it was blasted on, on social media. So at that moment, because of conversations like this and because of this understanding, I was able to see it for what it was and release it. And it was a very interesting moment to where it was so specific and it was so, you know, uh, it got me exactly where, where it was meant to. And uh, it was just so interesting for me to see that. Um, that's just something I wanted to share with you, my friend. So, um, an interesting, interesting story. How long do you feel that, how long did it take to heal? The wound? Um, almost immediately. It was when I, when I realized what it was and when I also realized that it was a beacon or a, a shakeup, you know, to not 
let me get too comfortable, which I don't. I take this very seriously. This is something I take a lot of pride in. Uh, my all is into this. So um, whenever something like that occurs, it, it wakes me up a little bit. It's like, okay, got it. Uh, I need to be very, very mindful about, you know, over making sure that I create a way in which I don't do that in the future. You know, it's where I'm just uh, associating the name in a way that rhymes with something. You know, I've, so I've come up with tactics. And to what got me, I guess, over it, to put it that way, was just solutions. It was to figure out what it was first and identify it as myself reflecting back to me about that one particular insecurity. But then also it was a way of, okay, well, why is it being presented to me? I know so that I'm aware of the insecurity itself, but also how can this be productive? How can we avoid this right in the future? Because that's what that, in my mind, that's what that feeling means, that, that, oh God, that, oh, this sucks. That is you, that is an opportunity for you from the universe, which is yourself in my mind, uh, uh, to be a greater, grander version of that which you really are and another opportunity to be better and a better, greater, grander version of yourself. So I, I always take myself up on that and I encourage everyone to do that as well. And so at that moment, I took myself up on the opportunity to transcend that feeling in a way that it was productive. So I've come up with, like I said, associative measures uh, and then just being more mindful, you know, not being lazy on a guest name is how I felt it was. Uh, so actually I've healed from it completely and I feel wonderful. Thank you for asking, by the way. My pleasure, my pleasure. So, you know, because I'm always fascinated in the way that people transform, but what I'm hearing is that you immediately detached, felt stillness and observed. Wait a minute. I don't need to defend this. I don't need to react. I just need to respond. What what information is the universe providing me with? What wisdom is the universe providing me with? Because after all, if we see the structure of reality as a mirror, you know, as a screen, that obviously I've created this, so to speak. And then you used alchemy. So you transformed it from negative into positive and saw, oh, no, this is a springboard for a quantum leap of experience. That's amazing because I feel that, you know, and the reason why I wanted to dwell on it, as you shared, is because we're moving from the, the, the martyr complex to the Christed consciousness. Yes. We're no longer fixated on the pain of that extraordinary man on the cross. Now we're becoming much more interested in his resurrection, the Christed consciousness. And when we all embrace this vibrationally, it feels to me that a huge quantum leap is going to take place within the collective consciousness of our peoples. Uh, beautifully said, and I completely agree. And this is what, you know, translates into that age of Aquarius. It's all, you know, there are many names that you can call this thing, but the exact idea of you, that you just expressed is exactly what it feels like we're going and, and not even feel. You can observe this in every corner of where you look now. It's, it's well, fascinating. I, I mean, forgive me, I have to quickly come in because I'm really fascinated. But I, you know, words are spells and feeling is the language of the soul, not thinking. So it is about feeling. It is. Course, you're absolutely it, right. You use the wonderful detonating device of discernment. What we're preoccupied with is judgment, but you turn the whole thing into discernment. And of course, it's, there's no projection into anybody, into any field of consciousness. It's just an expression of, no, I'm going to use judicious awareness here and recognize my full responsibility for this. And as you were saying about your wonderful, you know, the way that you interact with your wonderful lady, your beloved, you're using something that I call carefrontation rather than confrontation, oh, which is that's awesome. 
radical way of reconvening. How do we get to the point where we transparently talk about the conflicts that we're experiencing with one another, but to do it through grace? And it's through confront, it's through carefrontation rather than confront. Confrontation is the old way, it's the patriarchal way, and it just ends up in fisticuffs. I mean, you know, all we have to do is look into the Senate or look into the Houses of Parliament here, and we see it happening, and they're supposed to be our leaders. Not that that's a castigation of them. It's just an observation. <laughs> so this is leading edge thought. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your conversation. This is wonderful. And this is what it's about, because I've, I've learned a ton from you already, uh, which is wonderful. And I knew I would. I knew that we would be able to, to get to a, this point where there was this exchange of ideas and it would just enhance. And this is inevitably that flow state that I really, really enjoy by being this is the best part of the job to me. Uh, this is the best part of it. So with with this, and I love uh, judicious awareness. I love that, by the way. Wonderful, wonderful sentiment. And uh, what this what this speaks to, and, and to, back to what you said, I alchemize every ne negative situation. And I have, I've done it for years. It's, it's my superpower is, you know, this, you fall down the stairs, you don't say, ah, I fell down the stairs. You say, man, I made it down the stairs really fast. And, uh, you know, this is like just the way I'm wired. I just do that. And so, but there are certain things that still resonate like that with me, especially for this, like this show, like I said, I put everything into this. So whenever it was, um, I guess whenever and it's and and what's even more interesting I'm realizing now as we're talking through it is that it's it's the one thing that I want to be the most secure, which is how the guest feels. And I feel like by missing pronouncing the name again, uh, it makes the guest feel uh, unloved or any of that stuff or even a little bit, even though he was totally cool with it again. So uh, going deeper, it wasn't only that it was about something I was already thinking about, but it was about the most important thing to me, which is the experience of the guest because it translates into everything. So that again, uh, it hit that note and uh, but to be able to step back because that observer mindset is where I've really been lately and this is why I went to a default word like thinking rather than feeling because I'm to the pendulum swing in my experience to where it feels that I've disassociated from the I, I guess uh, f from life being able to alter the way that I feel about life if that makes sense from that observer effect so basically I've detached feelings from any situation and I do this in again this pendulum swing of this this part of the journey that I'm on but yes it will reintegrate into a more um, coherent uh, version of balance but right now is this separation occurs that's why I was able to alchemize that so quickly I just pulled out my uh, chronic optimism which I've always got and then uh, I re reappropriated it through discernment you nailed it so excellent observation thank you yeah I, I, oof, I don't know, over 20 years ago I had uh, the joy and the absolute wonder of spending three hours with Maya Angelou and in our conversation, she said, um, we were talking about substances that you and I are sharing, but she'd seen me give a masterclass on the substance of Shakespeare's language. And because she was, a, you know, a wordsmith herself, so she was fascinated by what I was talking about. And um, the level of resonance that I've already evinced with you. Um, and how when words arise from the heart, they have a very different detonation within human consciousness. And she said to me, um, you know, when you, when you leave a situation, people rarely remember what you said, but they always remember the way you made them feel. Absolutely. 
Yay! And yet, you know, Brandon, I've wandered around this planet quite extensively over the last, well, you know, I'm in my late 60s, so um, whatever that is. And uh, I've been looking for people with their hearts open. You know, I look in, I look into the eyes, see, are their hearts open? And my optimism has sometimes been dashed to the floor. But now I'm beginning to see more and more and more and more. And that's always really cool, you know, and you have great eyes to look into. So it's sort of like, I see, I see, you know, I see you. And therefore, uh, my love is is enriched, you know, because I think, wow, here's a brother who can share on this quality of living. And thereby, I feel that when we're doing this, there are impulses, resonances, reverberations that are emerging, rippling out from us and changing fundamental organisms that are living, perhaps not in harmony, in our immediate energy field and beyond. So whenever I have an opportunity to create coherence, I'm there like a magnet I love it and I'm grateful for your compliment I'm on the eyes I'll let my mom know you said that I didn't have to do with their physical structure but I did put the heart behind them so I'm grateful for them and I will openly accept that thank you I just wanted to say too that I see you and I've gotten to see a piece of you tonight that I haven't in anything that you've presented and I'm grateful for that you're always you and you're always authentic but uh, there's just something about this conversation, and I think just because we're having it, that uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for, man. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you uh, for this moment for me. So um, I want to ask you a couple of fun questions, and then I'll turn you loose, okay? So uh, do you have you heard of the, I guess, uh, conspiracy theory, for lack of a better word, that Shakespeare was actually, what was it, Francis Bacon, and that it wasn't Shakespeare at all? Have you ever heard of that? What do you think? <laughs> Well, um, I have lots. Of, I have a lot to say about that. Oh, okay. Uh, but it also involves you. Okay. Because because I'm an intuitive, you know. Because I'm I, I've always been psychic. Uh, of course, obviously, you know, sharing in the way that we are, and meeting you, and feeling deeply touched by you, your soul. Um, I mean, really moved, Brandon. I need you to know this. Really, really moved. That that's why I called you brother. I rarely do that. Um, you know, because a lot of people, oh my God, brother, you know, I, but actually, no, I feel, I feel a brother, um, unquestionably, unquestionably, the, the authorship of William, Will I Am Shaking Spear, um, because his patron was Pallas Athena, and Pallas Athena is always seen with a lance, shaking the lance in the face of ignorance to awaken people. Um, the upstart crow, he was called, <laughs> by a contemporary playwright, um, was William Shakespeare, the glove maker from Warwickshire. No, I mean, the mastermind that wrote those 37 plays and the you know, 140 sonnets uh, and the other additional materials was Francis Bacon, undoubtedly. undoubtedly really? Who is now in the incarnation wow. of St. Germain. And um, who is my master, and uh, I believe has brought you and I together, which is why what we our conversation wasn't supposed to happen right. when we when you first connected with me last year. 
it had to happen now because of the great shifts of consciousness. I believe that this being is the second coming. I believe that this being is the cosmic Christ and is not going to reincarnate as a human, but is actually raying the energy into we empaths. And it's we empaths coming together because after all, we have been the lone voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord for a long time. And now it's a question of we're all coming together into collaboration, co-creativity. And my, my feeling is that we've been wanting this for thousands of years, and now it's happening. So I feel that he's around you very much. Uh, I'm grateful. I, there's a lot of synchronicities there that you and I probably should talk about off air. But yes, I completely agree with you. So it res- and this is the first time, by the way, you and I are talking about this for the audience. Uh, immaculate uh the the synchronicities here but uh fascinating took took the words out of my mouth so thank you for that it's very rare to do uh <laughs> okay so <laughs> yes well as as you were describing that man um it it just feels like the work of a consciousness shift on the planet number one has to be done by us but number two is too much for one person and we all all, all of us in this uh, i guess um endeavor uh, know this you know it's a co-collective creative so uh, to back to what you said, but also that's a Neil Donald Walsh quote that I use all the time. And it's, um, it's one of these things. This is, this is what pushes it. But when you said that, that, that gave me the most empowering goosebumps I've ever had, because now it is, I've known it's about personal responsibility. And a lot of people know this as well, but now it, it changes the framework in which I view that idea. It's, it's more of a, you sign up to be part of this team, and then now it's your responsibility to be the highest version of yourself because you are an expression of the greatest good that there is. It's amazing and profoundly uh, powerful. So thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that. As you were saying it, I was like, oh, I felt it. So that was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> wow. My pleasure, my pleasure. <clears throat> and of course, as we both know, we could go on and on and on, but unfortunately, I'm aware of the time and I yep. have to see a client. Um, so unfortunately, I'm going to have to say shortly, we'll have to wind up. And I'm sort of reminded of a, a line, actually, from one of the Shakespeare's plays, which I feel it, it suddenly bubbles forth from the inner consciousness of me to share with you. Um, this line which says, Thus have I politically begun my reign, and tis my hope to end successfully. Stuart Pierce, my friend, I am truly grateful for your time. All of the ways to find you and connect with you, of course, will be linked down in the show notes. You guys make sure that you spend some time getting familiar with Stuart's work. It's f- fascinatingly rewarding. Um, so thank you again, my friend. I cannot thank you enough for your time. You're welcome here anytime. Namaste. Let's do it again. What an outstanding honor to be able to speak with the master of voice himself. Uh, All the ways to find Stuart Pierce, his books, Diana, the Voice of Change, as well as Alchemy of Voice, all of those guys will be linked down in the show notes as well as his website. So you'll make sure that you uh, go check him out for sure. He's got some amazing stuff, some warm wisdom for you, and it's delightful. So make sure that you check that out. Change your life for sure. So uh, the music that you are listening to is a good buddy of mine, Vinny the Saint. Make sure that you check him out in the show notes as well. Make it some incredible music, and I'm grateful that he allows us to share it with you. 
So uh, also, if you'd like to expand your experience with us here on the show, you can do so at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is linked in the show notes as well. And that is where Rockfin and merchandise and socials and all that kind of stuff can be found. So go out into this beautiful place this week, guys, and y'all hold a door open for somebody, smile at everybody that you come across, be nice to every human entity, uh, animal, lizard person, everybody you come across, guys. It's a beautiful world out here. Uh, Raise that vibration, and you do that with your kindness and your smile, as well as your actions. So two actions, uh, buy somebody a coffee or a meal or, you know, book a stamp, something like that in line around you. It's not a big deal to you, but it makes massive ripples throughout the collective consciousness, and that's what we're here to do. Be that change. So uh, as well as get out of the left-hand lane, pick up a piece of litter, of course, and uh, above all and anything else, guys, go out into this beautiful place, whatever this is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.